helpful for you to keep that passage open as we come to study it today. I've entitled our uh, study this morning, Glimpsing Grace at a Grave. Glimpsing Grace at a Grave. Well, today as we open God's Word, we're doing something that some of you have done very recently. Most of us have done occasionally. All of us likely will do eventually. God's Word takes us today to a grave and a funeral service. We've had a pretty up-close and personal look at Abraham's life over the, the 10 or 12 chapters of Genesis that we've covered so far. We've looked at his call from God. We've looked at his marriage his business dealings, even on one occasion, a military campaign that he led. We've seen him worshipping faithfully, failing badly, plodding on humbly. And today we are, as it were, right at Abraham's shoulder, standing side by side with him as he mourns the loss of his dear wife, Sarah. And that being the case, this is maybe the most intimate look at Abraham's life That we've had so far, perhaps uh, the saddest and darkest day of his life. And yet this is not just a passage about sadness and loss. As is always the case on the passing of a believer, the death of Sarah also gives us reasons for hope. It's a moment to meditate on the very heart of Christian faith. And so as we stand at Sarah's grave today, we get glimpses of God's grace and As believers, we get reminders uh, that in Christ Jesus, death is not the end and that there is hope even at a graveside. And so let's think first of all today about the grief God's people will bear. The grief God's people will bear. Look at verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah has a unique honour in the pages of Scripture. She is the only woman whose age at death is recorded for us in the whole Old Testament. There's an odd little factoid for you. And in the way verse 1 phrases it there, I think it's written to make sure we don't just quickly rush past this moment. Moses, directed by the Holy Spirit, is telling us here that this is significant. This is the mother of the, the, the nation of Israel. This is the the mother of the faithful, if you like. And at the age of 107, Sarah died. And whilst our series in the life of Abraham has, has perhaps we have highlighted, it's it's highlighted incidents when we maybe saw Sarah at times angry or at times bitter or frustrated, although some of that in large part was her husband's fault most of the time. Nonetheless, friends, we need to appreciate today that Sarah was a woman of faith. She shared the same faith that Abraham, her husband, had. Sarah loyally, faithfully went with Abraham when God first called him to go towards the promised land. When Abraham stepped out in faith, Sarah also stepped out in faith. When God told her that she was going to have a son, you remember we saw uh, the, the laugh of, of shock and, and we, we assume probably disbelief to some degree as well when she was first told that news. But nonetheless, having been in a sense rebuked by God for that laugh of disbelief, Hebrews eleven eleven tells us that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. So Hebrews again honours Sarah 
and says she was a woman of faith. Even when she was past the age, Hebrew says, she considered him faithful who had promised. She believed the promise of God that she would have a son. Just try to consider the length of time that Abraham and Sarah spent together. They were married for maybe twice the length of many married people today. Seven, eight, nine decades maybe. Think how well they must have known each other. How much they had experienced together. How many meals they ate, dishes they washed, prayers they prayed. Days they spent walking and talking and worshipping together. All of it culminating in that shared joy at the birth of Isaac. And seeing Isaac then grow up into a godly man himself. Did they have their struggles? Of course they did. We've been told about many of their worst struggles. They had struggles as every married couple does. Particular serious struggles at times. But they stuck together. And they were both believers Married for decade after decade after decade. And then one day, Sarah died. And Abraham here, friends, reacts the way any of us would react, Christian or not. Look at verse 2. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And those are two strong words in the original, to mourn and to weep. It means that Abraham went through a a dedicated period of grief, public and private. He shed his tears. He arranged a funeral. He spread the news of the death of his dear wife. Notice, friends, being a believer didn't leave Abraham thinking he had to hide his grief or pretend he didn't have any grief. Abraham mourned and he wept. He mourned and he wept. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Of course, believers more than anyone else, we we often have reasons to laugh and to be joyful, to celebrate. But believers, just like everyone else, we will face days of mourning and weeping. And some of you have been in exactly Abraham's position your life partner, your, your best friend, your spouse of decades has died and you have gone in to mourn and to weep for them. Some of you haven't lost a spouse but you've wept over the passing of a mum, a dad, a granny, a granddad, a brother or a sister, a best friend. Some of us have also mourned the loss of a little one that we did not get to meet but who we believe we will meet someday in glory. And this maybe goes without saying, but let me say it anyway, friends. Never let anyone, however well-intentioned they may be, tell you that a believer doesn't need to or shouldn't have to mourn or weep or grieve when a fellow believer dies. Even when a believer has lived a long, wonderful life, even when they have reached old age, they've seen their children's children, even maybe... Their children's children's children. Even when they're ready for heaven. Even then. We can and we should. Mourn and grieve. However much or for however long we need to do so. Why? 
Because any and every death is an intruder in this world. Whether someone dies young or dies old, it reminds us all that it is not as it should be. All is not as it should be in our world. Unbelievers nowadays are very prone to saying death is natural. You know, that's one of the ways that unbelievers try to cope with death. It's just natural. Our bodies uh, grow healthier and stronger when we're young. We reach our peak and then very quickly they, they naturally begin to get weaker and more feeble as we get old. And it's just natural is what people say. It's not natural at all. It's never the way it was supposed to be. Paul says death entered the world through one man's sin. It's an intruder. It's the punishment that God warned Abraham and Eve, or sorry, Adam and Eve in advance back in the garden. He warned them in advance that this would be the result if they disobeyed him. And so, loved ones, when those nearest to us are taken from us, yes, we will and we should grieve our loss, as Abraham did here. Now, we don't despair in our grief. We'll think more about that in a moment. Uh, if, if it's the death of a believer and if we ourselves are believers, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we do not mourn as those without hope. But we do mourn nonetheless. And out of love and concern as your pastor, can I urge you friends, when you face the death of a loved one, whatever the circumstances of that death may be, I would urge you not to go along with some of the things that are becoming commonplace in our post-Christian culture. Just last week, for example, I caught a snippet of a discussion on the radio about the current trend of holding what are now called life celebrations instead of funeral services for deceased loved ones. There's this trend now of everyone getting together and choosing to wear bright colours and opening champagne even in some cases and just having a life celebration. And in some ways it's understandable that unbelievers would do that because they simply do not want to think about death and some of them don't believe that there is anything better than this life and so what more is there to do than to just make the best of it and try not to think about it and act as if everything's okay. And of course we take time to give thanks and to celebrate in one sense the life of someone when their life comes to an end. But it should not come at the exclusion of of solemnity and seriousness and grief. Ecclesiastes also says in chapter 7 verse 2, better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart, the writer says. Sorrow is better than laughter and a sad face is good for the heart. Aren't those very interesting words and words that are superficial, foolish, increasingly godless culture does not want to think about. A sad face is good for the heart. It's not saying that sorrow is always better than laughter, that as Christians we're never in any circumstance allowed to be joyful. It's not saying that, but it's saying that sorrow in the face of death is more appropriate than laughter. A house of mourning and a graveside reminds men and women that death waits for all of us and that death does not belong in our world. And so, friends, even believers can and should take time 
to mourn and to weep for loved ones who pass away, even those who have lived life well, who have died in old age, who were glad that they've now gone to glory, to a better position than they were in if they were elderly and frail and unwell. Nevertheless, never feel you have to hide or suppress grief. Abraham's experience shows us that even God's people will go through it. So the grief God's people will bear. Secondly, though, the graciousness God's people can maintain. The graciousness God's people can maintain. Verse 3 moves the story on a little. Notice what it says. Then Abraham rose up from before his dead. Picture Abraham there wiping away his tears, taking a deep breath. And, and now he's, for this time, he's, he's, he's setting his mind on what he needs to do. There are arrangements to be made. He needs to honour his wife's passing properly. And what follows is a fascinating meeting between Abraham and some of his pagan neighbours in Canaan, the Hittites. Uh, just one of the many people groups in the land uh, not the Hittites, there's a more famous group of Hittites that some of you who enjoy ancient history might be aware of from Syria and Anatolia. These are different Hittites. But verses 4 to 16 describe for us this back and forth between Abraham and this clan of people, the Hittites. Abraham asks them for a piece of land to use as a burial ground for Sarah. And notice, friends, that although Abraham is a believer and these people are unbelievers, And although Abraham is still obviously in a time of grief and loss over Sarah, he speaks very respectfully and acts with great humility towards these pagan neighbours. In verse 4, Abraham describes himself as a sojourner and a foreigner. In other words, he's saying, I realise that I can't claim any ownership of this land. This is your land. I'm only passing through. It's yours, legally speaking. Twice in the course of the negotiation, Abraham bows before them. Verses 7 and 12, again, showing great respect for these people. And equally, the Hittites, whilst they're not immediately keen, it seems, to sell land to Abraham. They're happy for him to use land. But it seems maybe reading between the lines, they're not so sure about selling it to him. But they show great respect for him. He calls himself a a sojourner and a foreigner. But they call him in verse 6, Lord. That's a title meaning that this is someone of respect and authority. And they call him also in verse 6, a prince of God. So these people, although they don't know and worship Abraham's God, they clearly respect Abraham and his God. He has a good reputation. They've seen him over the years. The way he's conducted himself, the way his God has provided for him. And they respect him. And so Abraham and his neighbours, whilst there's a lot of haggling and negotiating and quite possibly the 400 shekels of of silver that he ends up paying them for this piece of land, it quite possibly was a very large amount. It was maybe quite expensive. And nonetheless, both sides deal graciously and respectfully with each other. Now just consider, friends, Abraham could have taken a very different attitude to these people. He could have thought to himself, well, they're pagans. I'm God's covenant patriarch. I know the land is mine. God has told me the land is mine, even if legally, humanly speaking, it's theirs. But I can bury Sarah wherever I like. And surely they're not going to begrudge me burying 
my wife, they're, they're not going to kick up a fuss about it anyway. I can just start in and, and do this wherever, whenever I like. And I'm sure if they give me any trouble, well, God's on my side anyway. But Abraham didn't act that way. Even in a time of personal pain and grief, he acted very graciously and respectfully toward his neighbours. How did he manage to do that? Well, because he remembered that indeed he was, as he says to them, only a sojourner and a foreigner, not just in Canaan, but in this world. He was, as the songwriter says, a pilgrim on the road, as all of us are. And this world was not his home. And he believed that God would provide for him whatever he needed, when and how he chose to. Hebrews 11 again gives us a helpful commentary. Verses 9 to 10 tell us, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham wasn't going to get worked up about the price of this burial ground. He wasn't going to use his grief or his God as an excuse to treat his pagan neighbours with anything other than respect. Because he knew that this world is not his home. That his stuff was only his stuff. And that God had far better in store for him in the future. Ralph Davis says there's such a thing as godly detachment and holy indifference. That's holy, H-O-L-Y. Holy indifference that should mark us as believers in this world. That when it comes to how we interact with others, how we conduct ourselves in front of the world, how we resolve disagreements, how tightly we grasp hold of reputation or possessions or whatever it may be, that in the midst of all of that, friends, we remember we are only sojourners in a world that is not our home. And that means we should never use our faith or, an, or indeed our neighbour's lack of faith as an excuse to ride roughshod over anyone, particularly unbelieving neighbours. Some Christians in Northern Ireland have this attitude, they're in the world but they don't like the world. They don't show any respect for unbelievers at all. They take as little to do with them as they possibly can. They're territorial at times, even underhanded. And they don't treat unbelieving neighbours with any kind of graciousness or respect. Abraham could have made up excuses to do that here. But instead he remembered who he really was. A sojourner and a foreigner. God will provide for me when and how he sees fit. And in any case, God has a far better future for me than a graveside. And friends, we ought to keep that same perspective. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29 and following. Paul says, From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What does does Paul mean by that? Is he contradicting everything I've said so far about never mourning for our loved ones and so forth? No, he's not contradicting that. 
What he's saying is that we are not to cling on to the things of this life as if they are all we have. Because, as he says, this life, this world is passing away. We're not to live as though the marriage is absolutely everything or the house is absolutely everything or our reputation is absolutely everything or our possessions or whatever it may be because we have a better home, a better future than even our best days in this world will be. That's what should enable us to live with the kind of graciousness and humility that Abraham displayed to these Hittites. And notice that by doing so, friends, the Hittites had seen something in Abraham. They call him a prince of God, even if they didn't fully understand him or his faith or his God. They saw that faith in action, even in this time of loss and grief. And so, friends, by God's grace, may it be the same for us, that whether we are mourning or rejoicing, whether we are single or married, rich or poor, that our attitude to this world would be a witness to this world that our God has something better for us than this world to look forward to. So the grief that God's people will bear, the graciousness that God's people can maintain, and thirdly and finally today, glimpses of God's promises fulfilled. Glimpses of God's promises fulfilled. The respectful bartering and haggling between Abraham and the Hittites results in one Hittite chief, Ephron, eventually agreeing to permanently sell Abraham a burial ground. And again, if you follow the dialogue closely, what you notice is that the Hittites at first tried to persuade Abraham to simply use a tomb, verse 6. But that's not what Abraham was asking for. From the very beginning, he wants to purchase land from them. He wants to buy burial ground and he wants it permanently transferred into his name and eventually that's what Ephron agrees to for the price of 400 shekels of silver and the passage also emphasizes to us that this was a public legal transaction there were witnesses to this uh, that everything was done properly and lawfully it mentions Ephron sitting at the gate And you might remember from the book of Ruth that this is where business was conducted in the ancient world. You met at the city gate. If you had something you needed to bring to the elders or some transaction to carry out, you met at the city gate. It was a bit like the town hall or a solicitor's office uh, for for us today. And that's where uh, Abraham chooses to carry out this transaction. There are witnesses. He wants everybody to see this. He wants there to be no doubt about what happens. Notice verse 16. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. There's the witnesses. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So notice the stress on on everything being done just as it should be there. All public, all above board. Everybody sees it. And then verse 17, this almost seems redundant. You think, well, okay, Moses, we get it, we get it. But look what he says in verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. See the details being given there to the point of redundancy that 
stressing to us over and over again, this was all done legally. Here's exactly the land that Abraham bought. Here's everything that was in it. And everybody saw it done. And it was all carried out properly. And you think, well, why does any of that matter? It matters, friends, because in purchasing this burial site, Abraham finally becomes the owner, the legal owner of just a small little piece of the promised land of Canaan. And the act of handing over these 400 shekels, and then also in the act of carrying the body of Sarah, no doubt with Isaac alongside him, and then laying Sarah in that cave in Machpelah, Abraham, friends, for the very first time at that moment, is walking on his land. Walking on land that God had long promised him and has now given him, albeit he's given him just the first little bit, just as much as he needs for now. And so even as he stooped over a grave, Abraham was being reminded of God's grace, of God's provision. Yes, it was a burial ground. Yes, it's sad circumstances in which he's purchasing his first piece of the promised land. But a burial ground means that this land will belong not just to Abraham, but to his descendants after him. And so in that sense, this is a little glimpse of the future. This is where Abraham himself, in a few years' time, his body will be laid when he dies. It's where the body of his son, Isaac, will be laid and Isaac's wife, Rebekah, will be laid and their son, Jacob, and his wife, Leah, will all be laid in this tomb. And yes, it might just be a burial ground, but in it as well, Abraham would have seen God's provision for him. It cost him 400 shekels of silver, quite possibly a high price. But do you remember back in chapter 20, after Abraham had made more mistakes... A man called Abimelech, for no particular reason, gave Abraham a thousand shekels of silver, completely unsolicited. And so it was easy for Abraham to hand over 400 shekels to purchase this burial ground. And at this burial ground, friends, he gets just a glimpse of God's promises fulfilled. The first part, the first fruits of much more still to come. And that's how God works, friends. We thought about this last week as well, Genesis 22 and also in Philippians chapter 4, that God will supply all our needs. Not always everything we might want at once, but he will provide for our needs. Abraham on this day needs a burial ground. He doesn't need the whole land of Canaan. He just needs a burial ground. And God enables him To purchase a burial ground. That's what Abraham gets here. Daily bread so to speak. Even in the face of death itself. And as we stand with Abraham at the grave of Sarah friends. Does it not transport us in our minds forward in time. To another grave. Another tomb. Which like the grave of Sarah speaks of promises fulfilled. And of a future full of hope. Sarah's grave was was for Abraham the first fruits, the first part of the promised land still to come. And that's exactly what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is for us. 
Because of course his grave today is empty. We don't even know exactly where the the grave of the most famous man in the history of the world is. Because he's not in it. He's risen. And his resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is the first fruits. It's only the first resurrection. There are billions more resurrections still to come. All of us who have died with faith in Christ, we will rise in resurrection glory when Christ returns. And that was the ultimate hope of Abraham, friends. Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, or chapter 11, verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Jesus himself said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it by faith. He saw the coming of his offspring who would defeat all his enemies, including death itself, and who would provide an eternal heavenly home. And so we remember today, as Abraham did, friends, that this world is not our home, that death is not the end. And when we have to mourn as Abraham had to mourn, we do it not as those without hope. If you look at your bulletin today, another timely insert from the Westminster Catechism. The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day, and even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it, so that although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery, and to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. In other words, friends, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then even as you stand at a graveside, you can glimpse God's grace. You can stand at a grave and consider the reality of resurrection, of a body that will one day rise perfect, free from illness, unable to age, free from sickness, able to enjoy a perfect new world forevermore. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just the good news of sin forgiven. It's also the good news of death defeated and resurrection life still to come. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Are you going to die with Christ or without Christ? With faith in him or without faith in him? Are you going to be separated from him? From his loving presence, from his gracious presence? Are you going to be facing that torment and punishment of your sin forever? Or are you going to die like Sarah died? In faith, having seen from afar the things God has promised you. Until that day comes or Christ returns first, whichever it is, are you going to trust that God will give you not always everything all at once, but he will give you what you need to keep on trusting and believing and walking in faith towards your real home? Even at a grave, we get glimpses of grace. And so may we, like Sarah and like Abraham, gladly receive God's grace in Jesus Christ. Put our trust in the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen.